Hello, this is the 34th episode in the Creative Flow podcast series, hosted by Anthony Bellani and Kimberly McKernan. It features discussions with thinkers and change agents important to the science of creativity. We welcome Dr. Roger Firestein. He's trained more people to lead the creative process than anyone else in the world. He's a senior faculty member at the Center for Applied Imagination at SUNY Buffalo State, president of Innovation Resources Incorporated, and author of Create in a Flash, A Leader's Recipe for Breakthrough Innovation. He's currently working on his latest book entitled Solve the Real Problem. Welcome, Roger. Thanks. It's a delight to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Roger, can you please share the story of how you became involved in deliberate creativity? I'd be happy to. And it goes back to, I grew up on a farm in northern Colorado. And when I was six or seven or eight, my mom had me take piano lessons. And I, I hated my piano lessons, all right? But I, my mom said, someday you'll be glad you took piano lessons. Well, when I was about 14, there was a minister at our church that had a little four-string tenor guitar. And he, he gave it to me. And he said, uh, you might want to try this out. Well, for the next two months, my parents never saw me because I was in the basement practicing guitar. And so uh, when I was 16, I started teaching guitar. I taught guitar all the way through college to earn money to go through college. And one of the things that I discovered in my first year of college, I'd been teaching for a few years at that time, is that my beginning students were getting kind of bored with their lessons, just kind of learning the basics, the technique. And so I thought if I could get them to get more creative, they might enjoy their music lessons more. So I started reading about creativity, and one place and two names kept coming up consistently in the literature, and that place was now the Center for Applied Imagination at, at, at Buffalo State University, and two names, Sidney Parnes and Ruth Noller. So in April of 1977, I was staying at my parents' house on, the, on our farm, and um, I, got the, I found the phone number of, of the department, and I got the courage to dial, to dial the phone number up. And I got the secretary on the phone, and her name was Jenny. And she, and I told her what I was interested in, and she said, well, Dr. Parnes is here. Would you like to talk to him? Now, I'd never spoken to an author before in my life. I mean, I'm 21 years old. I never knew an author. I, you know, I thought authors wrote books and they died. You know, good thing that they didn't because I've written a few. And so I, I get on the phone with Sid Parnes, and we have this wonderful conversation. And Sid says, yes, we've got this creative problem-solving institute. It goes on every year. It's in June. And we just started this Master of Science degree in Creativity Studies. Well, when I hung up the phone, I was shaking. I was so excited. And I ran up the stairs and I said to my mom, I said, Mom, I just talked to Sid Parnes in Buffalo, New York. And you know what she said? She said, what? You made a long-distance phone call? <laughs> <laughs> phone calls from rural Colorado in 1977 were pretty expensive. And so that year I came out, I went to the Creative Problem Solving Institute, um, I took the 24th Creative Problem Solving Institute. And Tony, what are we on now? About the 60th or something like that? Close, right? And uh, Yeah, um, I think we're almost to 70. Yeah, yeah, you're close, yeah. And um, so I took the institute. I took a three-week course. I was just on fire. I came back and, and I finished up my undergraduate degree, moved out here in 1978, and I think I was the seventh person to get the degree. And now we've graduated over like 800 and in talking to mom later, she said, Roger, she said, when you got off the airplane um, from coming back from Buffalo, that's all you could talk about was this creativity stuff, this creativity stuff. And so that's when the passion, the love for this stuff began. And um, it hasn't quieted down. I mean, uh, it uh, the passion is still there. The fire is still there. And 
and I'm having so much fun in this field. Um, it's it's just extraordinary to be able to have been in this business for 40 plus years and still just having a blast. So that's the story. That's an amazing journey. And um, <laughs> how many people who have uh, been on this podcast, you have played that role for them, Roger. So that's full circle. Amazing. Well, it, it's good hearing your story again. And it, it reminded me of, uh, and I, I know you know this, of, of Sid's uh, initial story yeah. as well, that when he attended the very first mm -hmm. Greater Problem Solving Institute, um, he pulled off the road. He was drove up from uh, Pittsburgh Yes. And he said he pulled off the road almost two dozen times or thereabouts. He couldn't do it like what you did. He couldn't stop making notes because his brain just kept going and going and going. And the story there, like you, is that he ended up moving his whole family up to Buffalo. Uh, so you were um, right in line with that same oh. power. And um, it's so consistent with uh, what nearly everybody we talk yes. to is that every everybody that's still doing this uh, caught the fire. So and it's so much fun. Yeah, it's so much fun. Yeah. So yeah. Fun fun is the key. We yeah. and we have whole people that talk about the seriousness of play and and working comedy and and humor and all that sort of stuff. It's uh it's an important piece of our work. So Roger, describe your consulting work and uh, share any lessons that you've learned that might help others on their journey. Yeah, thank you Tony. Let me broaden that a little bit. Let me just kind of talk about my work overall and what I've been invo involved in because it's not just consulting. I'm still teaching at the Center for Applied Imagination. I um, have been teaching there since 1984. I teach a class or two. I teach an introductory class, and sometimes I teach a facilitation class. And I'm still sit on staff meetings. It's important, I think, to stay involved there, the vibrancy and to what's going on there. So there's teaching. That's one aspect. And then I've trained people in an organization to apply creative problem solving, to be more effective, to be more competitive in their business. And one of the things I've just began working on over the last couple of years are breakthrough labs. And this is a really unique service. And the way this works is a client will come to me and they'll have a tough problem to solve. They'll have a product development issue or they'll have an expansion issue or they'll have a big staffing issue that they, they can't get uh, staff for. And what we'll do is that we'll um, have the client or and a couple of other folks. And then I, what I do is I bring in creative catalysts. And these are people that are highly trained in creative problem solving, like yourself, um, and are also experts in business, education, medicine, music, the arts, um, uh, comedy, uh, supply chain management. And they come in and we hire them to work for a couple of hours. And in two parts, the Breakthrough Lab is in two parts. The first part is where we work with the client to figure out what the real problem is. We clarify the problem. We generate a whole bunch of creative questions. And then we have the client select those creative questions. We come back a couple of weeks later and we generate ideas for the client. Um, and then they take the client, take those, those ideas and goes with that. And, and, the, and the beautiful thing about this is the unique thing about this is because I've been in the business so long, I know so many people in so many different areas. So we just completed a, a project um, with a cosmetics company on new product development. And we had creative catalysts from essentially just about, well, let's see, we had from, from Boston to Oregon, from uh, Los Angeles to Florida to New Mexico that were able to be a part of this. So we did it virtually. So that's really exciting stuff that I'm working on right now. Um, the other thing is I, I just released uh, a nine-part series on innovation on the Open Sesame e-learning platform. And we're real excited about that because that's gone into their premium package. And so 
Um, if you want to go to opensesame.com and just put my name in, you'll find those and, and they're really reasonably priced. And now with the new book coming up, um, now that'll be the seventh book. And we're delighted about this book because it will be like creating a flash. We'll have uh, illustrations and I have, an, have a wonderful editor. And so uh, so that's coming up. And so the lessons learned, Tony, as I began to, to think about our time together, one of the things that's really come to me about this whole field is keep it simple. Keep it simple. Particularly people that are listening to this that are trained in creative problem solving. I think oftentimes we go out and we want to try and use all of our tools and techniques because we have a favorite tool. We think it's really fun. We think it's, you don't need that. Um, you know, four or five basic tools are fine. Uh, the the uh, tools that I talked about, the creativity tools I talk about in create, creating a flash, they have the ones that work consistently, you know, and it's generate lots of creative questions, use force connections, defer judgment, evaluate ideas positively. And that's really the essence of it. And then the whole diverging out, coming up with lots of ideas, then converging in. So bottom line is keep it simple. So, Yeah, I couldn't agree more that, you know, the the basics and mm -hmm. can be taught so quickly and yes. they they can change lives. You know, it's amazing. And I think that's the thing too. They can be taught, taught, taught so quickly. I mean, lots of management tools and techniques and methods that are out there. You start to read into them, they get very, very complicated. And there's really no reason for that. Um, and I think oftentimes in reading books on these subjects, you'll find, and this has kind of been one of the the issues I've been talking both with my my the editorial team and our and our publicist is that you read about the first forty or fifty pages that's new stuff in there that's cool and then you're smiling all right because I can see and then the last rest of the book is kind of fluff it's like okay you you got so so we didn't take that philosophy and create in the flash or and solve the real problem half of the book is pictures half of the book is 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 uh, writing thanks Tony you've read the book you've been to the book openings um, that's our focus on that and it should be simple and I believe that a, a book should be a work of art. And so when you open that book up, you should be delighted. You should, every page you should turn should be like fun and like interesting, not only in the copy, but also in the illustrations as well. And I'm so blessed to have Heather Lazikas as my editor and uh, Cassandra Ott as the art director uh, doing this work. They're just fantastic people to work with. So as a follow-on to that, can you tell us one or two of your favorite success stories of applying creative problem solving? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm going to talk about three, and then I want to talk about one I'm really excited about right now. Uh, we worked with a Clorox company a number of years ago, and we worked with them. And uh, just by teaching them some creativity techniques, they were all able to solve a problem that plagued the company for 70 years in 15 minutes. And what that was was just a change in the mindset about the product that they were working on. So that's one. The other is um, a number of years ago, and this has just come to mind because I'm kind of back working in that area again. Um, we did work with Mazda Motor Manufacturing USA when they first came to uh, the United States back in the late 80s. And uh, they were building the uh, Mazda MX-6 and the Ford Probe. Uh, and this is, it was in Flat Rock, Michigan. I worked with the director of training and development there, a fellow named Ken Kamiga. And what we did was we combined creative problem solving techniques with quality techniques. We rolled them out. We taught, taught 3,600 people in this plant, creative problem solving quality techniques. The result was the plant came up to speed faster than any other plant in the whole automobile operation. What we mean by that is Mazda had predicted that the first car would come off the line, let's say January 1st, 1989. 
and the first car actually came off the line something like December 15th, 1988. So they saved something like 15 days in the amount of time it took them to get up to speed. And that whole philosophy permeated the entire plant as far as quality, as far as creativity is concerned. And then the other one is a local one is we work with uh, the uh, New York State uh, Economic Development Council, the Western New York Division, to help Buffalo, New York, secure a billion dollars in economic development funding. And what we did with that was essentially design the meetings that folks um, would, uh, graduates, folks, folks uh, like graduates of the program, other people are involved in the program, in the Christmas program would facilitate. And as a result, we were able to get best of plan and get a billion dollars of economic development for West New York. And that was a competition. Now, the thing that I'm really excited about right now is um, I'm guest uh, lecturing at the University of Buffalo School of Medicine. And one of the things I'm working with right now is we're working with uh, residents and we're working with uh, medical students, teaching them primarily creative questions, how to ask creative questions, because 40,000 to 80,000 people in this country die every year because of misdiagnosis. If we can get better diagnoses, um, we're going to save people's lives. The way you get better diagnosis is you ask better questions. And so that's really kind of been the impetus over the last year or so, and that's kind of leads into the new book. But that's what's something I'm really, really excited about is, is the whole questioning, the whole problem framing phase of the process. Um, and people have a hard time in many cases coming up with alternate problem definitions. We're comfortable coming up with lots of ideas. The thing that's challenging for us is to not accept the initial definition of the problem. And it's my contention that we're trying to use the strategies that we used in the fifth grade to solve fifth grade uh, arithmetic problems to solve really tough, sometimes dangerous problems that we face today. And that's the lead to the new book. So short question, long answer. Thanks. <laughs> Those are wonderful examples um, and all very impactful and exciting. So thank you for Thanks. sharing that. You've given us a good runway uh, to talk about all of your uh, authorship. You, your enthusiasm for the field just shows in everything you do and you. how you continue on. You know, you're the shining example of why retire if you're having so much fun. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Right. That, yeah. To that end, you've you've not only uh, uh, brought it to uh, people in many different ways, you've also become a prolific and successful author. Uh and and through that, uh, you're championing our field of creativity. So tell us about your new book. Oh, well, thank you. Um, the name of the new book is called Solve the Real Problem. And um, the premise of it is, so the way this developed was I was working with people in the defense department. I was working with people in medicine. And I was asked to come in and teach them problem reframing or problem definition because they weren't very good at finding out what the real problem is. Now, that's a little concerning if you're working with a defense department, you're not quite sure what the real problem is, but it was the environment. They're in a command and control environment. And so essentially what people were doing is like, high command said, this is the problem, go solve it. This is the problem, go solve it. Well, oftentimes they were solving the wrong problem or they'd come up with an idea looking for a problem to solve. And this began to surface, this was about September of 2021. It, 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 it began to really come to mind. And so we decided to do the book again. And, and so what I did was in the book is I interviewed people from business, manufacturing, medicine, education, mediation, aviation, agriculture, the military. And I asked them one question and I asked them, can you tell me a story from your life or your work when you discovered that the problem that we were trying to solve was not the problem at all? So 
we think this is the problem and we're working on this problem, but this is not the problem at all. And we have these wonderful stories. And as I began to go through the stories, I found that they identified four approaches or now what we're calling the mindsets. And so the first approach is to challenge your assumptions, challenge your assumptions, like look before you leap. Okay. Don't accept the, the problem as, as defined. The next is get an outside perspective. And we all know the value of getting an outside perspective, getting people from whole different areas to come in and contribute to it. The other one is to see the big picture, is what's the real problem we're trying to solve? What's the big picture here? And then the opposite of that is to look for all the details. So there's four mindsets, challenge your assumptions, get an outside perspective, see the big picture, and look for all the details. And I've separated the stories in the book into those four areas. There's other things that we've come up as far as research is concerned. And I had the delightful time of digging into the problem finding research around this. And one of the uh, one of the things that many people say is that when they're doing something like problem redefinition, they say, hey, look, I don't have time to define the problem. I got to get stuff done. Okay, I got to get stuff done. I got to get it done. Don't bother me with, with defining the problem. I've got to get stuff done. And so I have an interview with the former mayor of Fort Collins, Colorado, Wade Troxell, and under his um, under his leadership, Fort Collins became number one best city to live in the country, like three years running. And Wade Troxell has this to say. He says uh, he said one of the big questions I ask is like, what's the problem that we're trying to solve? So before you dig a ditch for a water diversion pro project, what's the problem you're trying to solve here? And so, um, so that's 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 the uh, that's kind of the approach that we went after. And so, one of the things that folks say to us is like, you know, I don't have time to redefine the problem. Well, I dug into the research around this, and Mark Runco came up with a wonderful piece a number of years ago. And in this piece, he divided students in this experiment into two groups. And one group, he gave them a problem to solve. He said, "Now go solve it." Okay. A second group, he gave them a problem to solve, and he said, look, take as much time as you want to figure out what the problem is, and then go and solve it. The reports of this study that was published in the Journal of Creativity Research found that the group that spent the time redefining the problem came up with more original, more creative, better ideas than the group that went right to work. So that was fascinating. And so I, I looked through this study, and I read through it, and the, the question that I had was, how much time did these people that redefine the problem. How much time did you give them to redefine the problem? So I talked with Mark about it and he said, he said, well, Roger, he said, we gave him an unlimited amount of time. He said, we said, take as much time as you want to redefine what the problem is and then solve it. He said, but in actuality, they took between five to seven minutes to redefine what the problem was. So the thing that we're going after on the, on the book is, do you have five minutes to redefine? Can, can you afford to spend five minutes to redefine the problem? Can you afford not to? So, and it's just that pause. And as you as you guys know from being in this in this field, at that pause, that stepping back, figuring out what the real problem is, because it doesn't make any sense to generate ideas for solving the wrong problem. So let's figure out what the problem is first. And the way we do that is come up with lots and lots of creative questions. Pick the best creative question, go solve it. Because as a as a colleague of ours, Dr. Teresa Lawrence, she says. The problem that you see is the problem that you solve. So see a lot of problems so you can pick the best one to solve. And so that's kind of the premise of the book. And uh, we we weave in research. Uh, we weave in some fun activities. We have, you know, there, so we do some whimsical stuff in there as we've done in all the other books. And then we have some really great uh, examples from all these different industries. But the thing that was, I think, is just so extraordinary 
is, you know, just spend five minutes to redefine the problem. That's it. You know, that's it. And so, uh, so that's what we're really excited about. I, I have found uh, when clients raise uh, similar attitudes, I ask this, I sort of look up at the sky and go, how is it that no one ever has any time to reframe the problem, but they always seem to find the time to fix the problems that they come up with when they do it wrong? Tony, that's absolutely correct. And that line I hear again and again and again and again. And and as I was writing the book, this I realized this just a few months ago. And I think what the thing is, is that we are not comfortable or we haven't ever been taught that you can really redefine the problem. I mean, we've been taught that you can come up with lots and lots of ideas, but we haven't been taught that you can redefine the problem. And so that's just, that's just, you know, it's like, whoa. Um, and the other thing is, let's keep it simple. Um, and so that's the premise of the book. And the main thing you're going to learn in the book is you're going to get some examples from other industries. You're going to get a little bit of research. And then one thing, one thing we're going to work on is generating creative questions and changing the whole conversation around that. And we have some wonderful stories around that. And then we talk about how you can implement this in your organization Um and so we uh, we use some biology examples in that. So I'll, I'll I'll hold for that. So the idea is to to make the air right. All right. <laughs> Exciting! Can't wait to read it. Well, yeah, we're very excited too, and and hopefully we'll have it out very very soon. Uh, I have a meeting here um, to uh, to go over that. So you have seen so much, Roger, and I love this question. So. Where do you see the global creativity community going in the future? You know, I really am glad you asked that question. I'm also glad that you gave me some time before our interview today to kind of think it through <laughs> because there's a lot of global creativity communities out there. Um, you know, have this, you have the Center for Applied Imagination, which is a global creativity community, you know, that really works on the, on the practice and, and research behind creative problem solving. You know, we have, you know, 800 some such folks across the world. We have the Creative Education Foundation and the Creative Problem Solving Institute that's been going on for close to 70 years, which is a, a celebration of creativity, bringing two people together from all of these different perspectives. We have the Creativity Expert Exchange that the Center for Applied Imagination does in March, kind of bringing people together on a virtual basis to share what they're working on. There's International Creativity Day that's going on right now. Um, there's this, uh, the Southern Oregon University, who is now every year is holding a, a research conference on creativity that really focuses on creativity-based research. Um, I'm going to be speaking in Iceland this summer uh, at the Creativity Conference, and this is a conference that I was not aware of, but it's probably about four or five years old. That's based in Europe and then uh, Western Europe and kind of internationally. And then there's blogs and there's podcasts like the good work that you folks are doing that are coming up around the world. And and so where do I see it going? I, I think they're all going to grow from their own perspectives. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, creativity is multifaceted. So why not have a bunch of multifaceted movements? Um, so And so the key is to respect each perspective. And so, for example, let's hear a creativity researcher and you're at the Southern Oregon University uh, 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 conference, uh, putting out, out your research on creativity. Um, you know, you don't put down the applied people. All right, we can all work together. And the other side is too applied people. You know, don't just you know don't just uh, 
put stuff out there without a research base on it. You know, everything in my books has always been taken from pure research. Um, I like to decode that and simplify that. And just a little bit on creativity research. Um, there's, there's, you know, I don't know how many journals there are on, out there on creativity now, but when I was coming up, there was one journal and it was a journal of creative behavior and nobody was doing creativity research in academia. As a matter of fact, when some of us got into this field back in the mid eighties, you know, we were told, yeah, well, you can study this creativity stuff, but you know, it's not that serious. We, we, you know, we, you know, um, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's just fluff. Well, it certainly isn't fluff. And as we all know, it's a key to our survival in the future. So I would say as far as the creativity communities are coming along is like, let's let each one each uh, evolve. Let's respect each other. Let's build on each other, play where you can play where you want to and, and play where you can feel that you can make the best contribution. It's such a beautiful uh, energy, Roger. And it makes me think of maybe Sid and Alex had mm. something like that in mind when they purposely made this an open-ended system and and it wasn't copywritten like uh, synectics right and today you see and they openly admit that design thinking is clearly built <laughs> on creative problem solving mm -hmm. but everything you just said in the last couple minutes i think is the is the mushrooming and the and the sprouting of alex and sid's open-ended mm -hmm. energy of welcoming we're coming into a renaissance, I believe, and I think you're right at the front line noticing it, as, especially okay. being a, a traveler and a writer and what have you. It's exciting to hear what you just said. So that's a beautiful thing for our community. You know, one of the things that um, in Sid, there was a celebration of SIDS back in 2009. Did you manage to make that? Yeah. I was there. And Teresa Amabile did the talk there. And one of the things that Teresa talked about, she said that SID really democratized creativity. As you said, he said, Let, creativity is something that we all have, we all possess, we can all do it uh, deliberately. The other thing is, too, is that we've followed Sid's approach is that uh, when you go to the website, rogerfarestain.com, we have, and when you buy Create in a Flash, um, there's 20 videos that accompany that. They're free. There's t about 20 downloadable PDFs, writable PDFs. When you go to the website, downloadable, they're free. Just use them. Just use them, use them, use them, use them, use them. Um, because it, the way we're going to grow this and continue to grow this is when you get this stuff out there. And, and you know, I don't worry about copyrights and that stuff. You know, uh, you copyright a book, you don't copyright a, a thinking method. Um, and the other thing that I think Sid and Alex did too is that, you know, when Sid, um, I actually just wrote a piece on Sid um, for the mid Oxford mid-century reader. And Gerard had me do a piece on a talk that Sid did back in 1962. They have a recording of it, and it was extraordinary to, to listen to the recording. But what Sid did was he 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 was so open with everything, and and he had this this wonderful ability um, to just bring people on board. and And I worked with Sid um, in in my early career, and I remember the Creative Problem Solving Institutes. What Sid would say to folks, he would, and I was he was on a phone on a phone call one time, and I overheard him, and he said he said, "Look, here's the deal." He said, "We can't pay for your way to get here." Okay. Um, but we will, but when you get here, we'll pay for your room, we'll pay for your food, and you're going to be working with some of the most incredible creative people on the planet, right? And he got people like, you know, like Guilford and McKinnon and, and, and George Land. And so, and later on, if I recall, um, I think the person that he was talking about, I'm pretty sure the person he was talking about was Ken Blanchard at the time. 
who wrote the one minute manager who at that time was just huge business guru got ken to come and speak you know and the and the bottom line was is is, is folks were staying in unconditioned uh, unair conditioned dorm rooms and eating uh cafeteria food but they came and they loved it because of the spirit because of his openness and because he really did a nice job of getting researchers in there practitioners bringing them together um, and I really think that was the the approach that Sid and Alex really fostered is let's get this out there. And so I've tried to continue that. And I think, you know, kind of my mission has been to over the years is to keep creativity simple, make it practical, help people to apply it in their world. So keep creativity simple, make it practical, help people to apply it in their world. And Sid was my teacher on that. So kudos to Sid. Keep paying it forward. Uh, <laughs> you got it, man. Great stuff. So we ask this of every guest. We'll look forward to your response. So tell us about your creative flow. You know, I really appreciate that question. And once again, I can't thank you enough for sending the questions out to me beforehand because again, I wanted to think about through these things. And so um, writing is my creative flow. And, and I just want to say writing used to be hard for me um, and because I would sweat through stuff. Now it's fun. And I can really lose myself when I'm writing a book. Uh, the other thing is, too, is I have a wonderful editor that I work with. And so if I get to a certain point in my writing and I stub up, you know, or get to, to a point, I'll just back off and send it off to the editor or I'll back off and use a little incubation for that. So writing is one creative flow. And then I began to think about this a little bit more. And, and I really kind of found that I always need a creative project to work on. I kind of crave this creative flow. So maybe it's a book. Um, when Creating the Flash was done, I thought I was going to take a little break. No, we start and we do a nine-part video series for Open Sesame. Um, so maybe it's a book, maybe it's designing a video series or producing a video series. Maybe it's designing a creative problem-solving program or presenting my work. Or now I'm back to playing music again that I hadn't played in years. Or maybe it's playing music. And so that's when I'm in flow. So when I'm in flow... Uh, I'm doing creative work. And it was really interesting. One time we were working on on creating a flash. And I don't know if it was the art director or the editor that said, you know, when we get done with creating a flash, we're going to need to put Roger into a 12-step program because I think he's addicted to all this creativity stuff. <laughs> because it was just so much fun. And and I and 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 I think also too is that, you know, um when I when I, when I talk when I think about creating a flash and when I think about solve the real problem, I had the opportunity to talk to a a, a ghostwriter about a year or so ago. A friend of ours was going to be writing a book, and uh, my publicist had me talk to this ghostwriter and um, about writing for this friend's book. And he struck me. Uh, it just struck me about what he said in our short conversation. He said, he said within a few pages, the reader can understand the intent of the author. Within just a few pages, the reader can understand the intent of the author. So what are you writing a book for? Are you writing a book to show how smart you are or to get more consulting jobs or to, to write a book for, quote, passive income? Or are you writing a book to give back to the world? Are you writing a book to have fun? Are you writing a book as a work of art? And I really focus on the latter. I mean, I write, I'm writing to give back to the world. I've been so richly blessed in this business. I feel it's my responsibility to do that. And it's also a lot of fun. And then I write a book because it is fun. And I write a book because I want to be the reader that looks through there and goes, wow, this is delightful. This is delightful. And before we end, just a quick story. Um, when I did my second book, Leading on the Creative Edge, um, and we were all excited about that because it's a hardcover book. It was a major publisher. Or, or, 
And so I gave the book to my dad, and this is in the late 90s. And so dad is reading the book, and 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 I talked to him, and I said, well, dad, what'd you think of the book? He goes, well, I made it about 25 pages into it. Where are the pictures? <laughs> Where are the pictures? Okay. My dad was a farmer. He was visual, all right? And so the pictures made a big, huge difference to him. And so when we did Creating a Flash, dad's words, where are the pictures, had to be in the book. And so so that's why my whole philosophy is a book should be fun. It should captivate you. It should be a work of art. It should be something that should you should look forward to reading. And from my perspective as the author, it should be something that you can use in the world and that you can apply in all aspects of your life. So there you go. Well, you may be the first guest whose creative flow is creative flow. So uh, <laughs> we'll just uh, leave it at that. But uh, I'll take that. But, uh, as as expected, Roger, uh, I've known you for many years, but yes. it's always a joy to uh, get you. into it with you and hear your your story and your flow. So thank you very thank much for uh, all you brought today. Well, it's been honor. It's been an honor to be on your podcast. I really appreciate the work that you and Kim are doing. It's fantastic. And thank you for listening. This is Kimmery McKernan and Anthony Bellani. We invite you to tune in again to the Creative Flow series. We hope you will translate your creative flow into action and that your actions change the world.